Isaiah 44, um, 1 to 23. But now listen, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says. He who made you, who formed you in the womb, and who will help you, do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant, for I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. Some will say, I belong to the Lord. Others will call themselves by the name of Jacob. Still others will write on their hand, the Lord's, and will take the name Israel. This is what the Lord says, Israel's King and Redeemer, the Lord Almighty. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people. And what is yet to come? Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble, do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a God and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in a human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut, he cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning, some of it, he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and he eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, ha, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god. His idols he bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, save me, you are my God. They know nothing, they understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed that they cannot understand. No one stops to think, no one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, Jacob, for you, Israel, are my servant. I have made you, you are my servant, Israel. I will not forget you. 
I have swept away your offences like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, you heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, you earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests and all you trees, for the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. Good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you. My name is Josh. Um, I'm on staff here at Christchurch, and I'm going to be uh, speaking on that passage that was just read. So as Morris said earlier, please do keep that open in front of you. I'm going to be referring to um, quite a few um, bits from it as we go through. Well, as we're going to come and um, listen to God, let's pray for his help to listen to him. Um, let's pray. Father God, we pray that when we open your word this morning and when we hear from you, we would be seeing you in your glory and that that would be of great comfort and refreshment for us. We pray that you'd open any eyes that are plastered over and blind and that we would actually get to glimpse you and see what a wonderful God you are and find great joy and refreshment and hope in turning to you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But whenever I ask people how they're doing as a Christian, and when the answer is, um, well, I've kind of sort of lost my way a little bit, um, or kind of a little bit stuck, um, or a little bit kind of dry at the moment, feeling quite guilty maybe, feeling kind of having drifted, um, just a little bit kind of worn down. Well, the reason that people feel like that <clears throat> It's almost always the same. And I know from personal experience all the times that I've felt like that, this is my reason too. It's hardly ever that people feel kind of dry and far from God because they've made a decision, they've weighed up the pros and cons and decided I'm going to make a positive decision to stop coming to church. It's hardly ever that people have just decided and been persuaded that meeting with other Christians is now suddenly a bad idea or have come to some realization that, that prayer meetings are no good. No, it, the reason is almost always that faith and joy in God has been just accidentally been just kind of squeezed out, squeezed out by life. Often it's something big in life, perhaps a, a, a new job or, or an old job that gets busier or it might be a new relationship or just family or a side project. And it's inter interesting to see how quickly, when those things start to occupy us more and more, how quickly we then view coming to God and relating to him as something that's hard, something that's just kind of makes us weigh down or feel guilty. How we often think coming to God and relating to him is just almost more of a distraction from what we're really doing in life. And it's also funny that we also keep thinking then that the things that we're pouring, pouring ourselves into are actually the things that are really going to sustain us and revitalize us and reward us ultimately for, for giving them ourselves. It's funny that we think like that because that's actually the exact opposite of what God says in Isaiah 44 that you've got open in front of you. Because in this passage, we're going to see in the first section, God says that if you're one of my servants, if you're my servant, then or being my servant leads to refreshment and it leads to God's help and his blessing poured out. And in the last section that we're going to get to, God says how being his servant means forgiveness and no guilt and rejoicing. 
It's all those really wonderful life-giving things that make us throw and thrive and be happy found in relating to God. And it also is going to say in this passage that it's those other things that squeeze God out. It's those things that actually drain us. So as we look through Isaiah 44 this morning, get ready to be challenged and surprised. Maybe in a rebuking kind of way, but actually probably more in a refreshing way. Because we're going to see God reveal himself in his glory, but what we'll see is, is a creative, life-giving spring. And when we see God in his glory, we'll hear a song of rejoicing that we'll just want to join in with. So in Isaiah 44, in the first section, verses 1 to 8, we see what it's like serving the God who helps. Serving the God who helps. Now in this part of the Bible, um, in Isaiah... God is speaking to the nation of Israel, and they have got a special relationship with God. Four times in this whole chapter, on this passage that we're looking at, four times God describes this relationship they have with him as the fact that they are his servant. Now, I guess for most of us, we really probably don't like the idea of being someone's servant. It might come across as a little bit mean that God is describing them as his servant. But actually, when we read on, we're going to find that the way being a servant is described is actually really quite lovely. See, in this chapter, we get two pictures of help. In both cases, Israel are the one being helped. Let's think of it a bit like a kind of hierarchy based on who made who. So at the top, there's God, and he says, I made Israel, and he says, I made you, and I help you. To verse 2, he says, he who made you who formed you in the womb, and who will help you. But Israel in the middle, we're going to see later, that they actually try and make things themselves so that those things serve them. And they try and get help from what they have made. So Israel are in the middle of this kind of hierarchy, if you think of it like that. Um, and they can be a servant who gets help from God by looking up. And that is this type of dynamic, like a junior looking up to the, the wise and skillful and strong and reliable coach. You are below them in this dynamic, but actually you get help. You look up to the one who helps you. It's like a child looking up to their parent who holds them and helps them. The alternative for Israel is to, to employ a servant or make a servant. When we get to verses 9 to 20, this is what it's going to be like, but they are going to try and kind of be the boss of this servant who's they have to really work hard to get get anything out of this servant and actually trying to get something out of a servant they make is going to be well it's going to be draining sapping it's going to suck the life and vigor out of them and ultimately it's not going to bring, bring them any help whatsoever but it's this first picture that we're going to start with so yes Israel are a servant but it's actually this lovely and safe and caring relationship look at verses one and two but now listen, Jacob, that's what Israel are called, Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. This is what the Lord says, he who made you and formed you in the womb and who will help you. Do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. God wants him to know that relating to God like a servant doesn't mean that it's your job to help God. 
But actually, the, it means you get to have his help. And he gives them this wonderful picture in verses 3 and 4 of a dry desert being refreshed and plants blooming like a garden thriving in the summer. And this is what he says is the experience of someone who's his servant. So verses 3 and 4, For I'll pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They will spring up like grass in a meadow, like poplar trees by flowing streams. When we started this series in Isaiah, Morris introduced it by saying that these passages are like, are like the time when you're on a, a long car journey and it's a long, hot, stuffy, tetchy car journey and there's restlessness and bickering in the car and then you finally get to where you're going. You, you see the sea. And just glimpsing the sea in its glory and majesty just brings a new perspective and calm. And these verses are here to have that same effect. See, if you're busy and distracted and just looking at God just gives you that sense of guilt and weight, well, come and see God in this passage. Come and see the God as he reveals himself to us here. He's a refreshing stream in a dry land. He pours out blessing. He loves to help you because he made you. And he loves to bring growth and flourishing and life and health and joy and peace. If you're a desert... Come to him and he'll make you into a garden. And in verse 5, it's showing us that it's the joy and pride of anyone who's experiencing this to, to really own his name, to be able to say, I am a servant, but I'm a servant helped by the one above me. I'm a child helped by my father. They say, I belong to the Lord in verse 5. And yet we just fall into this silly idea, don't we? And I've done it myself all too often. This silly idea that relating to God is just kind of stumbling and, and plodding, just trying to serve this one up there on high who's just waiting to catch us out. But that's simply not this God as he reveals himself to us when he shows us his glory. When we come to this God, he says, I made you and I will help you. He says, if you're my servant, I pour out my blessing on you. He says, I bring things to life. I refresh a parched land. I strengthen the withered. And then there's this promise of community of people who love to identify as his, who wear it as a badge of honor, that they have his name on their hands. What that means is a little bit like in the Toy Story movie. You know how Woody is really, really pleased to have Andy's name carved into his foot. And it means for Woody that he'll never be lost, that he'll always be loved by Andy and cared for him. I mean, Woody is, never, is only ever kind of Andy's servant, if you like. He's only ever a toy, but he loves to have the name of his owner on him. So what does it say about God that his people love to have his name on them? For God's people, that relationship belonging to him, being made by him and being helped by him means everything. And no wonder, because being God's servant is a life-restoring, refreshing, abundant, and flourishing place to be. And that makes it all the more ridiculous what comes next in the passage from verses 9 to 20. Because we're going to see God expose how we get sapped by the gods who need. So verses 9 to 20, we're going to see how we get sapped by the gods who need. 
Um, I was having a conversation just a few weeks ago with somebody about my relationship to computer games. And um, so I grew up kind of in the Nintendo sort of era, so I say to be I'm classically trained. Um, and I do enjoy some computer games and console games. You know, I was there as an eight-year-old with my Game Boy. But I'm not a hardcore gamer, so I don't spend hours and hours in, in online kind of stuff. The way I re relate to computer games is that I like to use them as my servant to help me rest. I use them as my servant to help me relax and switch off just a little bit of downtime for myself. But there was this one time when I got a game on my app, uh, as an app on my phone, and I thought it'd be just that. I thought it'd just be a game that I can use, sit down, recharge the batteries, play a little game, uh, and carry on. But, and I'm sure I'm not the only person to experience this, I found that it ended up sucking me in. See, the type of game it was was that you'd play it with some other players and you'd form a kind of community, but you all had to play your part, and so it meant that every day I had to kind of complete some quests and contribute some resources to this group I was in, so it meant that I had to keep up going, keep on going so I could match what these other guys were doing, and I had to keep my place in this community, and every morning I had to go on, the first thing I did is after I woke up, I had to go on and do a few things so I could contribute into this group I was in, and then every evening I'd also have to go on it, and instead of it being this lovely, relaxing thing, it was just a chore. It was this duty. It was something I had to do, and it was even quite stressful. And this group of people I was in just booted me out because I wasn't keeping up. Now, some people don't experience this with games, but you might have experienced this with, uh, say, like social media or with sport. It's a good thing, and it can help you. But you imagine that it's going to serve you and help you rest and bring that lovely thriving to your life, but in fact it sucks you in, demands you, drains you, and disappoints you. And from verses 9 to 20 in this chapter, Isaiah says that anything that's not God does exactly that. He takes aim in verse 9 at things we treasure. He's not taking aim here at computer games or apps, but he's talking here about idols he paints a detailed picture in verses 12 to 14 of exactly how idols are made. He's very descriptive in this passage about how there's a blacksmith and a carpenter and the tools they use to, to make these idols. But what he says about these idols are they are things that people treasure. And what he says about them could actually be true of anything that is in our life, whether it's made of wood or metal or something else, that accidentally squeezes God and his refreshing joy to the margins of our life. What he says about these wooden and metal idols can actually be true of, could be true of a career, or a family, or a relationship. Could be true of an addiction, or partying, or actually any of the million things that we fill our lives with that distract us away from the refreshing joy of God. And in this description, Isaiah is going to expose four ways that these gods sap our strength. And how, four ways how these gods really don't, don't help us at all. In fact, the truth of these gods is they didn't make us and help us, but we made them and we helped them. So here's the first thing that we see about these gods is they take our image. There's an irony about these gods that they are made in our image. And they are made by the might of our arm. And that means that they are only as strong as we are strong. 
We can only get out from them as much as we ever put in, and they reflect just like what we are with all of our weaknesses. It means that these gods Isaiah is talking about, the things that squeeze God out of our lives, well, they've got no strength in and of themselves to actually reach into our darkness, into our weakness, and actually help us with something that we don't already have. Second thing, they need our help. So these gods actually aren't things that help us. We made them, and we help them. If you look at verses 11 to 14, we find some humans, some, some people busy at work. It's the carpenter and the blacksmith. And all you find them doing is busying themselves, wearying themselves, uh, doing all they can to make and sustain these idols. Well, that's not a dynamic whereby they're getting helped by them. <laughs> these idols can't help us. In fact, they need our help. The third, they drain our strength. This, uh, these verses go on. There's a, this ridiculous picture because there is a, a blacksmith kind of slaving over his hot furnace, getting tired and hungry when just a few verses earlier we read about the God who, who's like streams of water. He's like a warm summer's day with refreshing cool streams that bring flourishing. And yet there's a blacksmith who ignores all of that, who's, who's hot and sticky and sweaty and tired. And it says that he, he gets hungry, he runs out of water. It's ridiculous that someone would do that when there's this refreshment on offer. But that's because things that aren't God demand us. They demand us, they drain us to the point where we just get fed up and tired and dry. But we can't get rid of them. That's because, fourth, these idols con our hearts. When you look at it like Isaiah puts it in verses 15 to 17, it's obvious. It's obvious. It should be obvious to this workman who's bowing down to a god that he knows is made out of wood. He, he's the one who actually grew the wood. He's the one who chopped the wood down. So he knows very well that this thing is only wood. And in fact, he's even burned half of the wood. So he knows that this idol is made out of what is essentially firewood. <laughs> and... He's only chosen to worship it instead of burn it. But he knows that this idol is nothing more than firewood. And so it's pretty absurd that this person would worship a god like this. It's absurd, but Isaiah says it happens because, verse 19, no one stops to think, though. And that's because when you treasure these things that sap the life out of you and actually distract you from the refreshing God, when you treasure these things, well, you become like them. And in this passage, it says that means you become blind and deluded. When you see it from Isaiah's perspective, yes, it's obvious. It's a stupid thing to do, but well, we can't help it because our hearts are captured. But you know what? It's great that we've got Isaiah 44 in front of us today because this is what we need to kind of jolt us out of that delusion. It's an expose to show you what it is that you're, uh, what it is you're feeding on, <laughs> feeding on ashes, and what it is you're missing out on. And we need to see that because we're all prone to treasure human idols, things we treasure, stuff that probably starts out as good. I mean, the wood is good, metal's good. But when we form them more and more into our image, when they demand more and more of us, they don't help us, but we help them. When they sap us and drain us and we can't let them go because we are so wedded to them, well, that's when you know you've got an idol. <laughs> And we need Isaiah to, to expose that and show us that those things that we're pouring ourselves into tire us and drain us. But you know, the great thing about this passage is that these idols aren't exposed in order to tell you off for following them, 
but to actually release you from them and to say there's an there's a easier and a happier way. Isaiah doesn't turn to take aim at like, telling people off in this passage. He's inviting you away from doing something that's rubbish, serving life-sapping gods, and inviting you back towards serving this life-giving God. It's a no-brainer. As long as you remember. So the chapter carries on um, remembering the song of glory. That's what we're going to see in verses 21 to 23, remembering the song of glory. We have to remember this wonderful truth. I do a lot of remembering. I have to remember every single morning. I'm not very much of a a morning person. Um, I'm quite groggy. So the first thing that happens when I wake up in the morning is I I don't really know where I am or what's going on. So I have to take a moment just to remember. Remember where I am and what day it is. But you know, sometimes it's worth remembering because sometimes we've probably had that feeling. You know when you remember, when you wake up, you remember you're on holiday so you wake up on holiday and things are different and you're always confused because, you know, it's a different bedside cabinet next to you or it's somewhere slightly different and you're on the opposite side of the bed or the sun's coming in from a different angle. You don't quite know where you are. And so the first thing you have to do is remember. But what you remember is lovely. You remember and you go, yes, I'm on holiday. You remember and you think, oh, yeah, that means I can just go back to sleep. You remember and you think, well, yeah, I'm just going to be reading my book this morning and I'm going to go out for lunch this afternoon. Sometimes lovely to just have that moment to stop and remember and say, oh, yes, there's something wonderful. Did you ever have that experience as a child? I've had that um, when I was really quite young. And where you get yourself up, you get yourself dressed for school, you pack your bag, you go downstairs, and then mum says, why are you dressed like that? I'm like, oh, no, what have I got wrong? Have I got my jumper on backwards or something? And she says, no, it's a Saturday. <laughs> Remember, remember what day it is. Remember that you don't need to go into to work hard and slave for this today. Not the school slaving, but um, remember, it's a good day today. Remember, there's something wonderful. And verse 21 says, remember, remember these things, Jacob. You're not serving those idols, for you, Israel, are my servant. And you know what it's like to serve God. We covered that in the first point. Remember, remember that picture of what it's like for that blacksmith, for the person who's devoted to the things he treasures, just spending his days sapping his life out of him, serving idols that leave him feeding on ashes. Remember, and remember that that's not who you need to serve. That doesn't actually need to apply to you because you're God's servant. So wake up, remember what day it is. You don't need to make anything that serves and helps you. Because he says, Israel, I made you. You are my servant. And you know what's wonderful about this promise is that Israel were called to remember this by Isaiah. Because they were called to remember this promise of what God would do for them. But you and I are called to remember, not for what God will hopefully do for us, but actually for what God has already done for us. Because you see, in in Isaiah's day, all of this was yet to come. This refreshment, this streams in a dry land, was all yet to come. Because at the moment that they're hearing these words, that Israel are hearing these words from Isaiah, at this moment, they are actually exiles in another land. They're in captivity. They are under foreign rule, and there are people with no home. And they were experiencing all of that because that was God's judgment on them, their, their punishment, because they had spent all their lives abandoning God 
and disobeying him. And that's what God calls their sin. But God does say in verse 22 that he swept away their sin and redeemed them. He's re- redeem is language of buying someone back out of captivity. And yet, when Israel hear these words, well, they are still kind of in captivity. They're still really waiting for that to be fulfilled. So for them, this chapter is a call to look forward. Remember what God's got in store. But this chapter is a call to us to remember something that's already done and dusted. Not to remember that you will be on holiday, but remember you are. We can have the assurance that this God really is redeeming and refreshing. Not because of a hope that's promised, but because there's an act in history where all of this was completed and guaranteed. And all of this is offered to anyone who wants to come and serve the God who helps. Because every hope in this passage is rooted in what Jesus has already finally accomplished. See, Jesus, because of his death on the cross, he made a perfect and proper sacrifice to God so that our sins could be swept away, so that any fear of God's judgment would be swept away, just blown away like mist. Jesus' death is the only sacrifice that was satisfied God, and it's been made. So God really can say today, return to me, for I have redeemed you. And you can see that because Jesus did it. And so you and I today get to remember that God has guaranteed and demonstrated this sort of love for us. He's demonstrated, he's revealed his glory in Jesus to show everyone how he loves and cares for and protects and restores and revitalizes everyone who's his servant. See, Jesus died so that we can look to God for his favor instead of judgment. And we can turn to him as people who want streams of water in a thirsty land. And actually, Jesus really fulfilled this as well when he poured out his spirit. It says that God will pour out his spirit. Here, we know that Jesus has poured out his spirit on people who treasure and follow him. And you know, when Jesus pours out his spirit, it has the total opposite effect of what those idols do. See, Jesus' spirit gives us help from above, from outsiders, might and strength that we never had inside us in the first place. Jesus' spirit doesn't need us, but we can rely on him. And Jesus' spirit doesn't drain us, but he fills us up. He fills us up so much that we, the only response that we get from, in this passage is that we fill up so that we overflow in a song of joy. See, Isaiah's message is a message of release and clarity and refreshment. Remember what day it is. Wake up, remember, return to God, and then enjoy it. There's this call to sing for joy. And, and we can sing for joy if we trust in Jesus and look to God for hope and refreshing and redeeming our lives in dry and dreary days. And we then get to sing about hope and refreshment in him. We're called to see God as he really is as he shows us here in Isaiah, as he confirmed to us in Jesus. See God as he really is. And we see in this passage, he can only be a wonderful maker. He can only be a mighty helper and a merciful forgiver. And that's what God is is telling in this passage. It's about him, and he wants people to know that about him. He's displaying his glory to the world so that everyone can know what kind of God he is. And when he displays his glory, he shows it by showing that He is a maker who helps, and he is a redeemer who forgives. So it's really good for us that God displays his glory, because he displays his glory, but we get to enjoy it. 
we get the help. We get the forgiveness. Our treasures drain us, but God fills us up. Fills us up so much that we overflow with this song of joy. And our song expresses our joy and gives glory to him for the redeemer he is. So this morning, if you're that person who has a tendency to to feel a weight of guilt when it comes to kind of returning to God, or if maybe the distraction of God that has been squeezed to the margins, if that just kind of feels like it interferes with the real business of life, well then come and see the God in his glory as he reveals himself in Isaiah 44. Here is a God who's a refreshing and life-giving stream, and he invites you to turn your guilt into a song of joy. Because he's redeemed you. He's made your sin vanish like mist. And he pours out his spirit to revive you. So just remember that. Remember, wake up. Remember what day it is. Remember, he has done everything. It's all completed. And he calls you to his streams in the wilderness. So come and serve the God who helps. And who's always at work for our good and for his glory. Let's pray to him. Father, we thank you that you're not the type of God that we've made up in our heads, that we uh, fear, that we dread, that we run from or push to the side or feel bad in front of. Thank you that you are the God who's unlike any other God, who's, who's not life-sapping and draining and dull and boring and demanding, that you're a God who helps. Lord, what a privilege it is to be your servant. We want to be people who own your name, who enjoy having your name marked on us, and who want to say, we are made by you. We serve you. And you help us by pouring out blessing on us. Father, please help us remember. And Lord, we want to join in with the song of joy that says you have displayed your glory and you have redeemed us. In Jesus' name, amen.